Hi everybody, I'm John Christensen and I'm the Wealth Confidant. I'm having a fascinating conversation with a guy by the name of Joel Solomon, first time author of a book titled The Clean Money Revolution. He's a self-proclaimed money rabbi and runs a mission venture capital firm in Vancouver, British Columbia called the Renewal Funds. Joel makes it his mission to help those of us with enough wealth to think about where our money is and how it impacts the world. A fascinating conversation about abundance and the built-in responsibilities of stewarding wealth more intelligently. I think you're really going to enjoy this financial detox session. Joel Solomon, thank you very much for spending some time with me to share a little bit about your story and about what's going on in the clean money revolution. Also, just wanted to say thanks for spending a few minutes with me and letting me enjoy your beautiful city. I'm really pleased to do this. Yeah, it was great. So would you maybe just tell me a little bit about the Renewal Fund and kind of what you got going here? I've seen your office, but maybe just a quick synopsis of what you do with the Renewal Funds. Renewal Funds launched in 07, 08, when we went out to raise money during the recession. It's now $98 million under management, made up of investors, about 50% Canadian, 50% American, with a few Europeans. It is mostly individuals, families, and charitable foundations, some boutique wealth managers that aren't captured by platform and can uh, recommend to their clients. And we invest in both countries, roughly 60% U.S., 40% in Canada. And we focus on organics and environmental technologies. And how big of a team do you have here? 11 people on the team. And your role on the team is, is what? I, I am chair and all-purpose all uh guy as the uh, old guy here and uh, having been at this for a few decades, I get deployed as needed. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between what you call mission venture capital and regular VC and private equity work, just so people kind of have a sense of how you define that? Yes. We wanted some kind of a differentiator without getting too uh, complicated about it, but we are mission first. That means we want to know that the entrepreneur and the company is about something that matters, it's about something that will advance an issue or topic. And in food and environmental technology, there's a lot of that. We're making a lot of advances. Human ingenuity does a good job at that. But the point is, for us, the first thing is, is, is there a real mission and purpose? Do, are we getting involved with people who actually care about what they're doing for reasons that go deeper than only making money. Mm-hmm. And our promise to our investors is that we will have that screen while making you a, a market return on your capital. Would regular, let's call them regular venture capitalists, I'm not saying you're not, but a regular, would they have an issue with the fact that they don't care about what happens with the company? Or is it just more the priority is is reversed in that it's money first, impact second, possibly? Or are you saying, really, I think there's a big divide between what we do and what others do? Well, I think the world is moving fast. And I, I believe that people care more and more about ultimately what their money's doing, to whom, and to where. However, historically, the world of venture capital and most finance has been pretty much exclusively about money. 
So over the decades that I've been involved, I've seen it move from public markets using social screens to uh, maybe pick least worst out of out of sectors, that type thing. And then that field continues to advance with uh, more and more levels of accountability and scrutiny to what a company is actually doing, what they're doing in another country, what kind of fines are happening, how they treat their employees, how they look at their environmental issues and things like that. So this has been advancing for some time. In venture capital, the dominant paradigm, I believe, is make money. And that's fine. However, it leaves out some very important things. And for those of us that are paying attention to the state of the world and major issues, you got to go beyond, I'll make a lot of money and then I'll give it away. Because the way that we're making the money is causing a lot of problems just through lack of scrutiny and prioritizing that it has to be that way. Mm -hmm. Now, everybody is waking up to this. And increasingly, all firms are beginning to think about what the other impacts are. That is driven a lot by the consumer and by the user of those products. It's also being driven generationally. And younger generation is much more clear, has much more transparency, and is thinking a lot about these questions. So the whole world of finance is at an early stage of adopting a more mission-focused mm -hmm. We say it up front because that's been the history of why we're in this business and our belief about it. And it's a differentiator for us because you, know, you look at a portfolio, you talk to the people, you talk to the companies, and you find there are differences, mm -hmm. and that's important to us. So segue just a little bit to the book, The Clean Money Revolution, which is just a wonderful read. I really enjoyed it. Loved the title. That's what kind of grabbed me when I first got to know you a little bit was that title was Clean Money. It fits so well, not only in Seattle where I am, but I think a lot on the West Coast and probably in a lot of places, people are moving to this idea of clean food, clean water, clean everything, clean money. The idea that this is a revolution, what's, what's that about? Tell me a little bit about the book and how that came about. Well, first, I'd like to tell you my struggle with the term as definitive as clean. I'm a relativist. I don't really think there is black and white about many things. And so I struggled with it. And wise advisors, the publisher, others said, you're not going to call it cleaner money. Nobody's going like, to, you know, and, and when you try to think of a title around money, there's, there's a lot of territory that's already been covered. Sure. So I was very surprised to find that clean money had, was basically not used in any formal way anywhere. And I've warmed up to it quite a bit because it does make a statement. And I don't have perfectly clean money. None of us do. Mm -hmm. But it's about the intention and the goal. So it makes a stark point and helps people get a sense of what it is I'm going to talk about. Mm -hmm. Just kind of tell me a little bit about the, the whole concept of a clean money revolution right. and reinventing capitalism. Well, the simple form of it is that I would say most people that are informed see a lot of trends and directions happening on the planet, which might cause us to question whether the survival of a population, a species, which in my lifetime has gone from under 3 billion to over 7 billion mm -hmm. and is carrying forward at a mm -hmm. nice clip, the carrying capacity, the way that we have treated externalities as if they could go away somewhere, the effect on climate, on ocean acidification, on species survival... Mm -hmm. And on pretty much every part of ecology that uh, we depend on as humans mm -hmm. to stay alive mm -hmm. and to have the uh, wonderful life we have today has been treated without enough understanding of the long term or commitment to the long term. 
So in other words, we do a lot of waste. We don't really think about all the people on the planet, and we're not thinking very long term as a society. So the point of the revolution is, I believe we're on a pathway to a very uncertain and potentially very problematic future. So revolution, again, is a, is a word that brings a stark point to the idea that we have all the money we need. There's a lot of money on the planet. Mm -hmm. We have the ingenuity to solve pretty much every problem mm -hmm. that we face as humans. But we're making different choices than that. And that direction is going to get us in a lot of trouble. So revolution means wake up, start doing something about it. Mm -hmm. I need to understand where my money is and what it's doing. And I need an industry, finance world, to help me put it into things that are regenerative and are about building the future that my children's children's children will be able to have some bit of what it is that we get to enjoy today. How does that tidal wave of money coming at us play into this? And you talk a little bit about that in the book, but it seems pretty central to this whole conversation. That's right. A personal health issue got me to think about food. It's kidney disease. And so I thought a lot about uh, what, what did my kidney do and what was I putting in my body and, mm -hmm. and how that might matter to the quality of my life and the length of my life. That was a starting place for a lot of people. And we've had 30, 40 years of a cleaner food movement going on, which was completely invisible and very fringe when I first got into it and kind of patted on the head and discounted even as, as recently as 10, 15 years ago. However, with cancer rates soaring, with all kinds of, let's say, environmental diseases and things, that, lifestyle diseases happening, mm -hmm. it becomes more and more clear to everyone that I care what my kids are going to eat. I probably care about what I'm going to eat. And I want food that I can trust. And I mm -hmm. understand what the ingredients are. And I know they're not hurting me. Next step is I say, well, how the people that are growing this food, what's happening to them? The rivers and the streams and the mm -hmm. ecosystem, the birds and the insects and what is happening with the whole industrial agriculture system? So if you go down that pathway and get informed, you begin to question a lot of the practices. You look and you say, well, somebody must have thought of this, and, and scientists must have, and government must be looking after it, and industry must want to do the right thing. And then you realize that we're part of a system that the incentives don't necessarily push us that way. So meanwhile, organic food, which would be one of the definitions mm -hmm. of cleaner food, has grown vastly faster than conventional food. Fortunes are being made by people going into these businesses, and it's still well under 10% of only North American food diet. It's probably less than 1% globally. Well, that is an, a huge industry in the making. Mm -hmm. Shift over to energy. How the logic of renewables could be anything other than... <laughs> And how do we solve this? How do we do it? There's obviously big money to be made on modern and new energy systems. The built environment. How do we make buildings that are less wasteful, that have good insulation uh, and have good sources of energy? And so you can go on through every sector of society and see some pretty obvious and simple indicators that we need to do better now. And so money's the, the next one. So that's the, but that, that 50 to, as you talk about, 50 to $100 trillion that's going to transfer generationally in the next 30 plus years, as you mentioned, that, that's a tidal wave of money. It is. Tidal wave of money coming at our kids, effectively, that's our right. kids and their kids. That's right. And that money is going to happen simply through death. And the 50 to 100 trillion, well, I, I use the 100 trillion number. I don't know what the total is on the planet. Mm -hmm. But in North America alone, it's about 50 trillion. And then you throw inflation in, who knows how big the number is going to mm -hmm. be. It's going to be big. It's going to be big. And that's over the next three decades. 
in these three decades and those of us alive today have the most power, have the most technology, have the most ability to affect things that humans have ever had. We can destroy at a very massive scale now. So your point is we've got this money, tidal wave of money coming at a global pro- set of problems that you think this is kind of the point in history. That's that's what this book's pointing the at. The book is a call. To, it's just to raise these questions and hopefully be a call to action. And there will be other people smarter than me who will go into more depth and get into the fine-tuning of it. But younger people today have grown up with so much more information and so much more dexterity about finding that information. Mm -hmm. And the trends are obvious. Mm -hmm. And all the polling and testing and demographics are obvious that they care more about these questions. And they're going to demand products that pay attention to them. Millennials seem to have an advantage in this area. They aren't blocked by the history of the way even you or I were raised. They, right. they just kind of have a DNA that says we're expecting different things. Is that what you're That's right. saying as well? That's right. So then if a few of us uh, agitate it a little bit and, yeah. and uh, help uh, raise consciousness about it, then it'll happen faster. Why not? Shifting gears a little bit to the current, uh, I would say, the way people look at money just in general. And you talk a lot about this in the book, and it's really kind of what you're trying to poke at effectively, which is challenging people with this concept of especially the people who have enough already. And so you, you talk about how much is enough. And then you talk about also people that have enough and and maybe who are on this race uh, to have more money, but ultimately find that you have a whole bunch of money and that doesn't necessarily create life fulfillment, doesn't create happiness. You can end up being lonely and all the other things that money can't buy. We all know that intellectually. But the reality of it is the race continues. Just I'm curious your thoughts around kind of the current state of money awareness. Well, I can come at this from a number of different angles, but really the deepest one and the point for me is a spiritual one, which is money comes from somewhere. And as I understand it, it comes from, and I use this as a neutral word, the exploitation of people and planet. In other words, if I can get somebody to work for me and pay them whatever dollar, and I can take a product that they make and sell it for more. That's how capitalism works. Mm-hmm. If I can go harvest something, be it a plant or a, a mineral or energy mm-hmm. from the planet, and I can put a price on it that gets me more than I paid to do all that, then I make money. And what I'm trying to say by spiritual issue is that where did creation come from and what is this place and what is life and how do we have a planet So any form, whatever religious belief or spiritual belief you have, you ultimately think about, well, where did this come from and what's my responsibility here as a steward of it? Mm -hmm. So I believe that this one kind of ran past most of the spiritual traditions and religious institutions, and we don't get taught a lot about money. We get taught how to use it, how to make it, Mm -hmm. how to be more sophisticated with it, but we don't get given a lot, except we hear a golden rule, do unto others as you'd have others do to you. But with money... We're able to outsource that so far away from ourselves. Mm -hmm. I go to buy a mutual fund. I don't have any sense of what those companies are doing Mm -hmm. in Africa or down the road or how their factories are, any of that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. We've created a divide between actually understanding the relationship of where did it all come from to connecting it to ourselves. No, that's interesting because I, I, I don't think Wall Street, you know, typically you hear spirituality and Wall Street in the same sentence. But I think there is a reality that uh, we aren't taught to be stewards. We aren't taught Correct. to be stewards of our money, let alone our lives. 
I mean, both of those things are, are things that we're lacking in. There's a gap for sure. But as it gets to this, how much is enough mentality? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of how much is enough versus get as much as I can? And yeah. because, of course, as a financial advisor, we're calculating all the time for people how much is enough because they want to know. Well, it's not something that we're taught much about. And I say I'll, I'll move from the spiritual to the emotional part of that or the psychological part. If money is our primary driver, that leaves out a lot of life. What are my relationships like? How am I treating my family? What's happening in my city and these kinds of things? And money is very seductive. I like money. Mm -hmm. I like making money. I'm a capitalist. I like to have more money. But what I've spent a lot of time doing is thinking about, well, why do I want more and what will I do with it? So I feel like that question is missing. I know people want more. For a natural drive, which is security, take care of your family, be sure you're going to be okay. So you're not saying that's bad at no, all? No, that's, no, no. Yeah. No, I understand that completely, and and I'm I'm deeply in it, and I make sure that I'm okay, and I can take care of my family and my responsibilities. But when I spent in my lifetime thinking about, well, so I've got some millions of dollars, and I earn money, and so I feel pretty good about that. Do I need to spend my life getting 100 million and then getting 200 million and then getting a billion and then 2 billion. Well, I don't have an inherent problem with that if somebody knows what it is they're going to do with that money and it serves the larger good because I just don't get why it would be okay for all of us to live in castles and own everything and uh, just accumulate more money I, I, because it has a side effect that's very damaging to the future. Well, it's kind of like, is there a financial finish line? Is there a finish line? Is there a finish line? And, and even if there is a finish line and there's money beyond the finish line, what's the money for is what I hear you saying. Yeah, I like to say, give me a billion dollars and I'll get it out the door really quickly into things that I think matter. You talk about the 20% of the global population that you define as kind of, if it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs or beyond food, shelter, that kind of stuff. Is the book really targeted at that 20% global population that this kind of a conversation matters or is it is it targeted at anybody? It's very hard to uh, take a topic like this and write for 7 billion people and you know cover mm -hmm. all the different demographics. So I did have to make a choice. It's focused on the affluent mm -hmm. primarily. We, the affluent, do have a lot of choices. There are a whole lot of people on the planet that their choice is feed myself and my family, get a roof over my head. And I'm not one of those people, and I can theorize about it, mm -hmm. but that's obviously is not the audience here. The 1% is 3.8 million people in the U.S. and Canada. The 10% is 38 million, and the 20%, therefore, is 76 million. That's just in the U.S. and Canada. That's a lot of people. So those are the people that control most of the means of production, the financial systems, the political systems, therefore the public services systems. And so those are the people that not only do I most want to reach, but I believe actually hold the responsibility to take this topic into consideration and do better. It sounds like in the book that you ask this question of this same demographic of people, which is kind of what is the money for? That's a big question, which I think whether or not you're investing in a business or just you're an individual, to your point, what's the money for? No matter how much money I'm making, why is that question um, so important to you and how does it play out when you ask people? Well, it's important because I think the lack of answering that question is causing a lot of damage 
to people and places. When I ask people, and I like to ask it kindly, my job is not to make people feel bad or, or condemn people. It's to uh, encourage more awakened thinking. So I ask it with a lot of respect, but uh, it's something I've done a lot with entrepreneurs when we're going to make an investment or when I'm making an investment is, why are you doing this? Okay, I want to make some money and I want to take it. Okay, good. Kind of the why. Why? The, the why, yeah. I mean, there's the purpose of the company. Sure. That's the first why. Yeah. But then the second is, well, how big do you want it to get? And mm-hmm. why? And then they say, well, you know, I really want to make money. And I like to say, well, how much? How much would you like to make? <laughs> That's a fascinating question. Yeah, how much would you like to make? $10 million, $100 million? Have they thought about it? Rarely. Isn't that interesting? Rarely. And if they have, the answer is, I want enough to take care of my family and be sure the kids can go to good schools and I can maybe help them with the house. And I want to be sure I've got stuff for my retirement and for being sick and aged. How much is that? Yeah. You need $10 million for that? How five, much is enough, five, right? 20, 50, 100. And then you with a billion. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. Be a hero. That's interesting. That's really cool, though. I, I, I just love the question. In the book, I just when I got there, I thought, what a fascinating question that most people don't get asked. Uh, you talk also a lot about this relationship to money. And being myself in the financial services industry, the relationship with our money is a really interesting thing. And you talk about it in a way that enlightened me, even. And you talk about it being one of the most important things. Why is it so important that we look at our relationship with our money? Because our name is on our money, and it is doing things in our name right now. And while we sleep, and while we go out and give to charity, and while we do something nice for a family member or for a neighbor, our money is doing some things that we need to understand and we need to take responsibility for. If I choose a bank, where does that money go? Does any of it stay in my community? Mm -hmm. Does any of it focus on what I believe in? Does it focus on things that I find detestable? We should know this. Kind of like the idea, if you ask somebody, I want to know what you believe in, just give me your checkbook and I'll see where you're spending your money. That's That's just the checkbook. That's basically what you're saying is your money is what you value, what you believe, who you are at some level. However, okay, everybody's got a pass card right now because a system happened where we never had to think about that and nobody asked us that question. Well, more of us need to ask that question now because the world is in trouble and we got to do something about it. And those of us that have choice and affluence and influence are very responsible. That's the concept of intelligent stewardship you refer to? Yes. Let's be wise. So what do I do? I can preach all I want, but, but, preach what, do it, I, keep what, going. but what do I do myself? Well, it's imperfect. There's not a perfect system for me. I don't do much in public equities because I don't really understand where that money, you know, what all it's doing. So because I'm an entrepreneur and I devoted my career to this, that gives me the ability to focus more and therefore the questions get tougher. So I can be involved in uh, real estate or in private companies. Well, I feel like I have even more responsibility there. Back to why do we call ourselves mission venture capital? I am claiming that Mm -hmm. I am going to do my best to have my money be less damaging and Mm -hmm. more constructive. What do you do with people that don't have those? Even though they're affluent, they've got money, uh, but they might say, well, there's a couple of things. One, you talk about this being a journey, uh, and it's not a journey of perfection. Uh, You know, it really truly is cleaner money, not clean money. 
you know, I can just envision the conversations, which are, I'm busy, you know, I'm raising a family, I don't have access to mission venture capital other than through you or other friends I know, and I got to put the bulk of my money somewhere. How do you answer those people? I'll go here first, which is, how do you treat other people? How are you as a human being with other human beings? How are you in your family? How are you in your marriage? How are you in your relationships? Similarly, those are things that you can either think about or not. You can be a jerk and decide that doesn't matter. Well, I, what I'm saying is this the painful reality that I wish didn't exist is my money is another part of me, my morals, my ethics, my behavior, my values. How do I treat people? If I'm going to eat shrimp and it's got slaves in Thailand feeding me shrimp cheaper, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that, but I know that I got to ask the question. And then I got to consider what the choices are. I don't have the answers. I got the questions. The head in the sand just isn't... It's immoral. Unacceptable. It's yeah. unacceptable. Unacceptable anymore. It's unacceptable anymore. It used to be that there wasn't any choice, significant choice. But the choices are, are growing. I think there's awareness, the opportunity to be socially responsible, put any label you want to put on it. But your point isn't so much about the solution. It's just... Ask the question is what I hear you saying. It's about the solution. I just don't have all the answers. Okay. But I do know that entrepreneurs in the financial sector are waking up to the opportunity of this, if not the drive. So I would say you, you want a mix of it, but you can just be purely opportunistic now. As you know, the biggest financial firms in the world are at least creating small divisions now mm -hmm. to handle this. Exactly. They're coming up with products. And they're struggling because they don't exist that much. You know, they're having mm -hmm. to get very creative with this. But sure enough, somebody's going to walk in there that's the child of a billionaire who's going to inherit most mm -hmm. of that money or a bunch of that money. And that makes any wealth manager pay attention. Yep. And they don't want them going somewhere else. Yep. So there's a, there's a self-interested uh, part of this that will help drive it. Is that the financial detox concept that you mentioned in the book? Is Because is I love the term. He has some great terms in the book, but that was a good one. Financial detox. Is that part of the self-reflection that you're referring to or is that something different? Well, just think of it this way. So if, if I've just been without any consciousness eating whatever and I go to the doctor and they say, well, you're overweight and you're alcoholic and you got high blood pressure and you need... Yeah. Okay. So... You need to clean up what you're putting in your body. So you could call that a detox. Stop putting poisons or you can't use excess salt. You can't use ex excess sugar. These will hurt you. Mm -hmm. Okay? So you go through a detox. Or you don't, but you get the consequences. Yeah. So if you look at your money similarly, as uncomfortable as that is, and I understand and I sympathize, but if you don't, you're walking around just like you're feeding mountains of sugar into kids that can barely pay for a lunch during the day. I'm doing that with my Coca-Cola stock. Is that okay? It's not a perfect journey you mentioned in That's the right. book. So how do you struggle yourself with cleaner money? Is that just, you just have to get to a place, because you still must worry about what you're doing even. Totally. In the position you're in. So help people appreciate the, the struggle if they decide to step into this more fully, that it's not a perfect journey. One step at a time. <laughs> Maybe my only biblical quote is, seek and ye shall find. And I've practiced that and I know that it's true. Ask questions. Ask questions and have discussions, maybe do a little research. And if we all do a little better, there's a new foundation. Mm -hmm. And then we do a little better. And then the world starts to meet us with products and services. 
So perfection, forget about it. Perfection is the enemy of the of the good. Of the good, yeah. yeah. So so we need the good right now. And if we get enough millions of us or enough billions of dollars mm-hmm. that are insisting on being better, you as a financial manager will work extra hard to find products that will make me happy. And you will make money by doing that. And this is the biggest money-making opportunity in history, is to just clean up and, and modernize all aspects of our economy. Which has all the right elements to it, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be cleaner? Less wasteful, more efficient, less toxic, healthier. What's wrong with that? Treat people better. Don't break laws. <laughs> um, it sounds like the questioning for you started a long time ago. And the questioning started for you in in kind of a purpose quest. And I was intrigued with that because you had both sudden wealth. Many of our clients and the people we talk with come into wealth quickly. Either it's through stock options or some kind of wealth creating events. A lot of the people we serve are wealth creators on the West Coast. So that's pretty common. But the and for you was and you had a health concern, a major one. So all of a sudden you've got this kind of need to look inward or, or you just are taken there. And you start asking yourself kind of those vexing questions that that a lot of people need to ask at that point but I'm curious about that moment and how you uh, you know the questions you were asking yourself at that time well I would say I did come from a tradition and a family that tended towards questions of what's the right thing to do so that helped a lot so that was the third factor on top of what do I do about this health situation because I'd like to live longer and I'd like to feel good. And then second, what am I going to do with my life? Oh, life is actually something that ends. What do I want to do with it? So that's the meaning and purpose part. And if life ends and might even end soon, well, I would really like to think about my meaning and purpose. What might I'd like to think from my deathbed. What would I like to be remembered? What do I want to leave? So everybody's got those questions. If you just, you don't have to hunt hard to find those questions. It's nice to avoid them. Better to go watch a movie and not think about them. But I believe that the spiritual gift of being alive on this planet is something that's worth taking very seriously. So therefore, asking questions of meaning and purpose of my impact, I do not like to hurt other people. Maybe some people do, but I don't like to. So I I like to be kind. I I, I like to be respectful. Well, I want to do that with my money as well. How do you get people that aren't at that crisis? They could go watch a movie. And when you had the crisis was a forcing function in some ways, but not everybody has that. They can ignore in lots of ways. So the benefits I'm hearing you say of stepping into that, and you're preaching to the choir with me, I I love talking about the concept of living fully, which is about meaning and purpose. And I think it brings a fullness to life that if you're willing to step into that spiritual place, which is uncomfortable for people, I think, at some level, because it's, you know, who wants to talk about that at some level, your death or whatever you want to say, we're not going to be here forever. So there is some interesting things about that, but... What would you say to the person that, that doesn't have that crisis but has affluence and wealth? And, and what would be the reason they should step into that? Well, people are very different. And there are some people who will choose not to step into that. So I can only make my best case. I can appeal to those around me, to those that I might influence. And I would say the same things that I've been saying already to your questions is, this is a part of life that is part of, it's part of our responsibility. We, we are stewards of this Garden of Eden. 
And we can ignore that. We can just take advantage of it and glide through and let others take care of it. And I probably can't do much with people who have that attitude. But I think most of us are good people, want to be good people. And if we've got the right information and the right peers and the, 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 mm-hmm. the right attitude, this is just an under-examined question. This is one of the major mm-hmm. under-examined questions. I don't even think I can't figure all this out and, and write all the maps, but I, I know that people are smart enough if they just awaken to how under-examined our relationship to our money is and our understanding of what our money is doing in the world. And if we have that moment where we say, yes, that's a pretty, that's a decent argument. I'm going to try to figure out what my money's doing and I want it to do things I feel represent me. I'm willing to tell my children. I'm willing to tell my, my God or (laughs) whatever my uh, higher power is. And it's going to be on the list of things that I want to have known about me or I want to know about myself when I come to the end of this uh, wonderful gift called life. So this examine life you talk about, you even say that learning these inner skills should be compulsory for those who have massive wealth and who are investors. So almost a sense that self-mastery and finding your own calling, what is your unique contribution, should be required. If If you've been given all this wealth, that's part of the ignorance. Let's get intelligent about that and step into the stewardship with a real calling and purpose. Is that correct? Yes, except really it goes further. It should just be basics. You, you mentioned deathbed and that people are uncomfortable with that. Well, it's very, very short time in history where we have been separated from an intimate experience of death. We used to live with our elders. We were there. We saw death happen. Mm-hmm. We did ritual and ceremony around it. We celebrated it. We mm-hmm. had all kinds of practices. And we've moved to a time of sanitizing ourselves away from tough things. Mm-hmm. So that that's part of the challenge, and I think we're talking about the same bigger topic uh, with all of these different issues. I'm convinced that if we come to terms with the fact that we actually have responsibility, oh, and this is not just for the affluent. This really is should be basics. Uh, I think most people that will hear this are probably familiar with the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. or the Golden Rule mm-hmm. or things like that. Well, let's do the Golden Rule. That's very simple. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Would you want somebody to pour toxic chemicals in your yard? Would mm-hmm. you want your neighbor to put something in there that mm-hmm. causes you to get lung cancer? No. No. Well, why would you let your money do that? Right. Yeah. Um, how, where does generosity fit in to this whole clean money revolution? I consider generosity one of the early advanced states of being a human. Survival probably comes first. But generosity is a representation of love. Love, to me, is the core of most religions. It's what we all want. We need self-love to function. We want to be loved. When you get to the point where you don't want that, then a lot of tragedy has probably happened, and society should figure out how to help. But generosity is a natural outflow of self-esteem and a sense of enoughness because I believe that humans are naturally generous. If we feel our own security, we like to help other people and we like to be helped. So generosity is just one of those core, what would you call it? Well, it's a value, but it's, but it's, it's more, it's a, it's a core expression of humanity. So generosity with money is very important. It can separate us from the actual human experience mm-hmm. a bit, but I believe that those who 
actually choose to and feel generosity can extend that to the larger context of, I know that I would like to be useful to the larger whole and to humanity in general, if I could. Is that the billionaire of good deeds concept that you mentioned, which is fun? I mean, that's a, that's a very cool vision. That billionaire thing comes from this, which is the how much is enough. So I've got enough money. Well, now what do I want to accomplish? I'm not a scientist. I'm not a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. And ambition and motivation seems to be part of human nature. Mm -hmm. So ambition and motivation can cause us to do great good, and it can also cause great harm. I would rather do good than harm, and I don't need more money. But I've been trained by society as a privileged white male living in North America in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. That being a billionaire is the sign of success. Mm -hmm. You are somebody right. if you're a billionaire. And otherwise, you're so-so. Well, I want to be a billionaire. I want to be special if I can. So what I thought about a lot was, well, what other kind of billionaire can I be than of dollars? And quickly, you know, if you, if you ponder that question, it's just like, how much is enough? Well, what kind of billionaire would you like to be besides of dollars? I'd be happy to be a billionaire of good deeds, of generosity, of love, of caring, I can think of a lot of things I want to be a billionaire, billionaire known as. What role does the wealth management industry, we have a role, obviously. Yeah, we, we are the keeper of the, the rules at some level that this whole game runs by. And so I'm kind of curious, if you start thinking about generating and preserving what you call real wealth, which I like that term, and even living wealth is another interesting term. How do you see the role of a financial advisor, wealth manager playing in this in today's world now? You are the priests of the global religion right now. Hmm. Money has become a central driving force for everybody. And the pursuit of it is kind of the spiritual unifier right now. I don't, I'm not saying that, you know, I, I question that. But the wealth managers are the spiritual guide, the magician, the, mm -hmm. the priest who mm -hmm. tells me, because I'm moving to this money thing. Okay, I've, I've had a windfall. I've got mm -hmm. some money. I've got to do something with it. I get messages from society. I try most of those messages, I come to the priest and I get told generally, well, you want to make more money. Get the best return you can. Get the best return you can. And here's how you get the best return. Well, you have just, as my money spiritual advisor, sent me down a pathway. Mm -hmm. And just like I might go to the priest or the rabbi, mm -hmm. I'm influenced by that. Mm -hmm. So I believe that the wealth managers have the opportunity to shift from utilitarian supporters of a system that has gotten outdated mm -hmm. and needs to be reformed and can be the miracle workers and the ministers that help people see money and accumulation uh, in a much more holistic and generative way that will help them have better lives, better relationships, mm -hmm. better deaths, mm -hmm. and better meaning and purpose. Do you also see that individuals are coming with that? It's not always the wealth managers who's saying, right? Their clients are coming saying, I need the best returns because that's what I've been told. If I'm actually a chump, if I don't get market returns that look like this, right? That's the mantra. I come to any professional in every industry with preset mm -hmm. notions. And I guess what I'm challenging to anyone that's in the finance world, it's not just the wealth manager, it's the accountant, the tax people, it's, it's, all, it's mm -hmm. all kinds of people, insurance people, that we need to develop an ethic that 
we all care about the greater good and the larger whole, and that our job is to ask those questions to people. Now, as a wealth manager, I've got to make a living. I've got my own goals. If the client says, I don't care about all that, don't talk to me about it, I personally would choose a different clientele if I were in the business, but I understand that's mm. not something everybody can make the choice to do. Then you make your choice and you give them what they want. But I think the questions are also the questions of the advisors. Are right. you okay to put people into slavery, poison, and war? Yeah, exactly. Are you okay with that? As the financial advisor, in reality, and I think that's the shift you're referring to that's coming, it's not just the client who's responsible. That's right. I'm a fiduciary to your money. Let's talk about fiduciary. It's only about money? Well, I have to treat you and your money as if it's my own, I if I'm a fiduciary, right? But that definition is inherently part of the challenge. But that means I have to, to your point, I have to embrace at some level the thought that I'm more, I am my money and where it goes. Well, we are all subject to larger systems Mm -hmm. than ourselves. And so then we move to the realm of, well, right now in the United States, major choices are being made by public officials about the financial system, about our priorities, about the economy about our priorities, about many, many things to do with the economy. I won't go down that path further, but just say, how do those public policy people get influenced? What associations of wealth managers are there? What do they support legislatively? What do they do as advocates? Those are citizenship responsibilities, and citizenship should be all of us. Yes. I love the connection with spirituality and money. I just think that's a really fascinating journey that you share with us. And, I, and I'm fascinated with lots of pieces of that. But it, as it relates to life well-lived and the secrets to life well-lived, and I would say something you reference called clean living, which is a great term too. What are those secrets to a life well-lived, in your opinion? Well, first is an examined life to understand ourselves better, what our motivations are, where they came from, even generationally, what, what happened in our ancestry that might have us react to things a certain way. I come from Eastern European Jews. I probably don't need to explain the kinds of things that you know inherently I, are passed on to me about that. So the examined life meaning I want to understand my emotions and my thoughts and how I tick so that I can have a better marriage, a better parenthood, Mm -hmm. better uh, employee, employee Mm -hmm. relationships, better, you know, I can do better the more I understand myself. So taking on lofty issues and the bigger questions, I think originates with, we actually have enough self-respect and sense of responsibility that we learn about ourselves. So that doorway leads to many other things. Self-mastery. Self-mastery. So that's one really important level of it. The next would be citizenship. And we are so privileged. We, You and me are two of the luckiest people in the world If I, to even sit in Seattle and Vancouver, mm-hmm. not under the bridge, living under right. the bridge. You know, right. It's like, it's unbelievable privilege. Well, we've, we've gotten very immune to the sense and sensibility about that and what responsibilities come with it. But then there's the examined human that's part of society. And I believe that if you get yourself more enlightened and tuned into what's going on inside you, the next is, well, what's my responsibility as a citizen? And I I can stop with those two things because they're huge. And if you do those two and you make it a lifelong practice, by the way, you don't solve figuring out yourself. Ten years later, it's a whole different ballgame. You know, this, this is, I think, should be core curriculum to the school of life. 
How can I be the best person that I can be? Can Constantly be? evolving, right? Constantly, Constantly evolving. evolving. Lifelong learning. Yep. I believe that it is a natural outcome of those things. When you hear a question that maybe goes outside the zone, if I'm, mm-hmm. I'm asked saying, well, think about your money now. Okay, well, if people give me those questions, those add to my self-examination. I can discount them or I can consider them. And I believe that if we simply start asking this question, we will figure out great solutions and we will create a better world. So speaking of a better world, what's your ideal outcome in 2050, the future you see and hope for? Well, the simple answer is a cleaner, greener, more fair economic system. That's very idealistic. However, humans are capable of creating great things. And I believe if our goal is for the commons, okay, climate now, there's nowhere to run. Climate's going to affect all of us. So even in, for self-interest, what happens if there are one billion climate refugees? What's going to happen to us? What happens if we continue to push taxes onto the people with the least money, reduce them on the people with the most money, cut social services and social safety net, and drive everything towards more concentration of power? What's the outcome of that? What about when there's 5 billion people on the planet without enough to eat whose security is not good? I don't care how big your fort is. It won't be big enough. That's not good. Just be utilitarian about this. So the outcome is we will be less wasteful. We will treat resources as holy and precious substances. We will figure out how to take care of everybody enough so that there's basic stability. And to me, it's just common sense. The other approach is I will build a bigger wall. Good luck. Hey, thank you very much. Get out and read Clean Money Revolution. Wonderful book. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed spending some time with you and and just getting to know you and learning more about what you care about. It's really inspired me to think differently and to push my own boutique wealth management firm to continue to evolve that too. Thanks for taking the time and thanks for what you did. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Wealth Confidant podcast. It's been a real pleasure to share these meaningful conversations with you about the intersection of money and life and the journey of living life fully. It's not an easy path. It's one of adventure. And I hope that this has inspired and encouraged you to step out into your own life and to live life a little bit more fully. If you like what you heard on this episode of the Wealth Confidant podcast, Please subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. It's very much appreciated. If you happen to have any questions, please reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at JC Christensen or also on Facebook and LinkedIn. I look forward to connecting with you soon. The Wealth Confidant Podcast is produced by Jessica Fox, Anna I. McLean, and Anna Olivia McLean. Music is by Royal Deluxe. Go live fully.